Greetings, everyone. I'm Vicki Vesplega, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ASHB, and thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2021 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. Thank ASHP for the opportunity to discuss the complicated relationship between diuretics and acute kidney injury, and specifically discussing ferrosamide stress test. And I'm going to begin by highlighting the use of ferrosamide stress test for acute kidney injury in critically ill patients. It's kind of interesting when I was talking to a colleague of mine. And discussing that I was going to be giving a presentation at ASHP about ferrosamide stress test, and it would last for about 30 minutes. And my colleague said, ferrosamide stress test, is there really enough to talk about for 30 minutes? And I said, you have no idea. So that's what we're going to be discussing. And I wanted to start with a, just a little patient-specific quandary. You have a patient who comes into the intensive care unit. They're adequately resuscitated. They've given sufficient fluids, they've received the appropriate inopressors, and so you feel like they're adequately resuscitated for their septic shock. Yet you notice that this patient still has oliguria, and you also evaluate the blood pressure, and you realize that they're at the appropriate uh, mean arterial pressure that you're targeting, so what is it that you'd like to do with this patient? That's exactly the question that I'm asking is what would you do? Your option is do nothing. The fact that they have oliguria, you can just wait and see if maybe something changes. You could go about and give them an extra volume challenge and see if maybe their urine output picks up. Alternatively, you give them a vasopressor challenge and see if that might improve their mean arterial pressure and improves their output. And you could use an inotrope and potentially increase the cardiac output, resulting in some increase in urine output. And so these are your options. So just consider those and what would you do? I have to say the correct answer is really a patient-specific assessment, that there's no right answer with regards to two, three, and four. I'm hopeful that you do want to look into the other gear further and not just sit and wait and do nothing. So what if I take away that wait and do nothing option and I provide you with the option of the furosemide stress test? Does that change your response? Would you manage this patient differently? Would you choose that option instead of the others? Well, let's just say you go ahead with the furosemide stress test. And so we have our clinical consideration. The patient who's admitted to the ICU, who you believe has septic shock and is adequately resuscitated, and they still have this persistent oliguria. And you say, okay, well, that leads you to believe that even if you gave a fluid challenge, or even if you up the dose of the vasopressor or inotrope, that that really wouldn't affect their urine output. Thinking about that, and instead going in the direction of the furosemide stress test, Using the protocol from the original study, you begin with a loop diuretic, specifically furosemide, at one milligram per kilogram IV in a patient who is diuretic naive. And that means that they haven't received a loop diuretic within the previous one to seven days prior to this bolus dose. Or you could go up to 1.5 milligrams per kilogram IV in a patient who has actually received a loop diuretic in that time period. In the study, the urine output was monitored over a six hour time period. And the time point that was most predictive of progressing onwards to acute kidney injury stage three, and we'll talk more about that as we progress, was at a two-hour time frame. And the amount of urine output in that two-hour time frame was 200 mils. So if the total urine output was greater than 200 mils over that two-hour period, then the patient was considered to be furosemide stress test responsive. And that 
the patient really had pre-renal oliguria. And if the total urine output was less than 200 mils, then they would be considered furosemide stress test non-responsive and that the reason for their oliguria was of an intrinsic renal failure. So why the furosemide stresses? Why was that the selection for how to make this type of a determination? Well, it's really meant to be a marker, an evaluation of the tubular integrity. How well is the tubule functioning? And also to assess renal function reserve. And so if you think about how furosemide works, you know, that it is highly protein bound and that fact that it is not filtered and it actually is secreted and that it functions specifically at the site of action in lupapenli by affecting the sodium potassium chloride co-transporter, then you think that if the patient is fluid responsive, that all of this has to be occurring, right? So that means the tubular integrity needs to be intact. The nephron needs to be functioning appropriately to have that appropriate response to furosemide. So it's not simply just thought of is, okay, I gave furosemide responsive, resulted in some naturesis. It's more assessing the fact that based on the mechanism of the furosemide, that the tubular should be intact to be able to function in that capacity. This landmark study also went on to assess if the fluid responsiveness meant that it could predict progression to stage three acute kidney injury per the A-King criteria in the next 14 days. And it did perform well at making this prediction. In addition, in that study, they evaluated to see if it could predict the need for dialysis. And again, according to that outcome, the fluid responsiveness test did suggest and was related to these two particular outcomes. What do you do if the patient is fluid responsive, right? If their patient is fluid responsive at two hours, what should your response be? To replace the urine output, right? Post the furosemide stress test. To avoid any type of furosemide induced additional volume depletion, right? The patient was already resuscitated with fluids. They were at a good point. You're removing fluid from them. So you wanna make sure you replace that. We'd also like to give additional consideration to more fluids. You may have hit the target you expected, but in this particular patient, maybe they could handle additional fluid. Maybe it's appropriate to increase their presser or their onotrope. These are options that you would consider if a patient is first my stress test responsive. And also make sure to monitor your output as a surrogate for organ perfusion. Now, if the patient was not FST responsive, then Clearly, there's not an additional loss of fluid, and so there's not a need to replace that fluid, right? And also not a need to proceed with giving them more fluid in addition to what they were at. So this is really the point in time where you think about, is this patient in need of renal replacement therapy? And what kind of drug management could you provide? So here's a figure describing potential options associated with this response. So here on the y-axis, you have kidney function. And you can see in the arrows that kidney function can decline over time because the x-axis is time after an insult. So sometime around the time of the insult, you could do a biomarker assessment. And as the kidney function slowly declines, you could continue with that thought process and do some type of biomarker assessment, right? You could continue to monitor their serum creatinine. You can monitor their urine output. You can continue to think about some of the novel biomarkers and maybe there's some benefit there. Now, with the original FST evaluation, 
the criteria for enrollment were stage one acute kidney injury per the AKIN criteria, which means six hours of oliguria or 0.3 rise in serum creatinine or an increase of 150 to 200% above baseline in their serum creatinine, or they had stage two. And that meant it was more severe, right? So it's 12 hours of oliguria or a two to 300% increase in the baseline serum creatinine. And so that really puts them at this stage where kind of being generous here, the stage one AKI towards this red mark on the left-hand side. And then, you know, as you progress to stage two, it's a little further along, right? And so you could, at that point in time, make sure you're appropriately managing the medications through some type of stewardship, right? Evaluating if there's drugs that are renally eliminated that need to be dose adjusted, evaluating their nephrotoxic burden. Is there any drugs, nephrotoxins you could withdraw or avoid putting on as the patient's needs progress? You could also think about, you know, is it possible to discontinue or withdraw the existing renovascular drugs with existing renovascular effects? Like, could you remove that and put it on after this AKI episode? Could you just continue to monitor the new therapeutic drug monitoring for those neurotherapeutic index drugs that are nephrotoxic and also renally eliminated. So these are drug considerations when you get back the results from the first mind stress test. So the original study by Chawla is not the only one that has evaluated the relationship between the first amide stress test and AKI progression. There's other studies that came after that particular one and they evaluated also the progression from stage one to stage two per a king criteria and evaluated the duration of 30 days instead of 14 for the original study. The RUA study used the same protocol as the Chawla study, the original study, and also found that this could be used as a marker to predict progression to stage three AKI in that 30-day time period. However, it didn't help to predict in hospital patient survival. And then we have this next study, a retrospective study. And the importance to this is that there was an evaluation where they looked at a combined endpoint of progression to stage three or patient death within seven days. They didn't follow, right? It's retrospective. They said any dose or any bolus of furosemide would do, and they would evaluate the urine output after that bolus of furosemide. So the doses really varied from 10 milligrams to 320 milligrams in this evaluation, but they did find that the two-hour evaluation after this bolus of furosemide, whatever that dose was for that patient, was predictive of progression and was also predictive of progression of just to AKI stage three. And the cut point that they looked at was said, you know, this 200 mil response after these doses was reasonable. And then the most recent evaluation of AKI progression association for my stress test was looking at um, those patients who had stage one, stage two, but now it's per the Cadigo criteria and not the AKIN. And if they progressed to stage three within 14 days, and they followed the original first my stress test dosing in the original study, and yet they found the results said within two hours, the urine output cut point for them for assessing responsiveness and non-responsiveness was 300 mils. So at two hours, if the patient had less than 300 mils, then it predicted the progression to stage three acute kidney injury. And so slightly different. So here we have slightly different doses being used in the retrospective study, and we have a slightly different cut point for the urine output being evaluated to determine responsiveness or non-responsiveness. So not quite as clear as we had originally thought. So then you can also use for us my stress test to assess around renal replacement therapy. And I say around renal replacement therapy because in this three studies, it was used for different reasons. It was used to assess the need for dialysis for patients with AKI stage three, and if they needed a dialysis in the next 24 hours. It was used to assess recovery from renal replacement therapy 
or also was suggested it could be beneficial in determining the timing of starting renal replacement therapy. And then you can see that there was some variances in the frosamide dosing that was used. But overall, it was suggested that uh, urine output over six hours, not the two hours, but six hours, predicted uh, dialysis initiation within the next 24 hours. And the value that they used was 600 minutes. And then for predicting if a patient would recover after receiving RRT, it was noted that any patients who had spontaneous urine output or had a response to the frosamide stress test after the RRT was stopped, then those were patients that were likely to proceed to recover. And then they did an evaluation at 24 hours as well. And then, you know, it could be used to decide if early RRT is needed or standard or maybe a little later RRT, which is still a debate. So a different way of thinking about the interpretation or utility of the FST. So there's limitations, right? Patients in these studies, especially the ones that were predicting acute kidney injury progression, they left out patients with chronic renal insufficiency. Thinking about how frosamide works, they also did not include patients with severe hypovolemia. And of course, if the patient had avert hypovolemia, you did not want to include those patients. And this was an assessment of renal tubular integrity and renal reserve. And so if the patient had already had tubular necrosis, those patients were not included. And the majority of the studies, in particular, the additional ones that we're going to talk about for other applications, they're very small. They're very small in size. And the dosing and the timing of the SFT is variable. Even in the original study by Chuala, they used the FST in patients who had stage one AKI or stage two, right? And so that in itself is different severity and may result in some type of different response. So what are the pharmacist considerations here? I mentioned concern for hypoalbuminemia, and that's because, you know, frosamide being highly protein bound, it could actually interfere with drug efficacy if the patient has a low albumin. Also some suggestions of things that could interfere are severe metabolic acidosis. Because the frosamide is secreted into the lumen using the organic anion transports, the fact that severe metabolic acidosis could actually interfere with these organic anion transports could alter the efficacy of loop diuretics. Then there's suggestion that vasopressin administration can modify the expression of the sodium potassium chloride co-transporter, and that could interfere with the effect of furosemide. We also have NSAIDs and cephalosporins, which can compete for the organic anion transport, and so that may interfere with the efficacy of the furosemide. So these are all considerations. If you don't get the response that you were anticipating, or I'm not sure if you weren't anticipating one, these situations can potentially interfere, and to what degree we're not sure. So that needs to be further looked at. Pharmacist considerations continued as, you know, the dose varies if a patient has loop diuretic naive versus they've previously been exposed. And what does that mean? It's an assessment of loop diuretic therapy within one to seven days before doing the FST test. And then frosamide is the recommended agent based on its mechanism. That was the one that was originally evaluated. Now, some of the studies have looked at frosamide equivalent doses with other loop diuretics, and those haven't been studied as well. So, you know, they do have slightly different protein binding than frosamide and different bioavailability. So, you know, it's unsure if you would target the same urine output, if you'd have that exact same effect. So that requires some investigation. And the management plan for FST is something that the pharmacy needs to consider because in addition to just determining if you want to give the patient more fluids or if you want to alter their vasopressors, you would think about other drug management that can occur. And then there was a specific discussion around using FST in COVID-19 patients. And 
just a lot of caution around these patients, depending on their symptoms, may already be volume depleted. So just to ensure that you're not making the situation worse, again, this test should only be used in someone who's already adequately fluid resuscitated. So that's the first recommendation in your safety checklist as a pharmacist is to make sure that the patient is adequately fluid resuscitated before starting or using the FST test. And also remember in these fluid responsive patients that that amount of fluid loss in response to the FST needs to be replaced. Considerations for electrolyte disturbances and also monitoring of blood pressure with the use of diuretics and specifically the doses that you're using for the FST. So we really want to move towards this careful standardization and quality control so that we make sure that when this is being conducted, that it's conducted in a safe manner. About a clinical assessment in patients who are undergoing a kidney transplant. So the first my stress test has been used in two smaller studies. And the study, first one was in 200 deceased donor kidney transplant recipients. And then the next one was in 59 deceased donor transplant recipients. And so you can see the star next to the second study. And if we follow the star throughout this particular slide, you'll see the results that relate to that study. The dosings varied. And so for the first study, the, it was interoperative bolus of 100 milligrams of furosemide after anastomosis of the renal vessels. And the second one was 1.5 milligrams per kilogram at three hours after the allograft reperfusion. And where it seemed to perform best was at four hours. And then it had a 350 mil cut point for determining if the patient was likely to be predictive of a delayed graft function. So if the patient had received the 1.5 at the three hours, if they evaluated the urine output at four hours afterwards, and the urine output was greater than 350 mils, they were less likely to have this delayed graft function, right? But less than 350 mils, then they were more likely. And so in the other evaluation, you can see that about, you know, could be predictive at two hours, but also at six hours, but with different varying urine outputs to evaluate. So we have different doses here. We have different timing for the evaluation of the urine output. We have you know, different cut points for evaluating what's responsive and what's not responsive. And so some variation here, but does suggest that maybe there's some benefit to using this test in this particular situation. Now thinking about the first mind stress test to evaluate chronic kidney disease. If we think about the association between acute kidney injury and chronic kidney disease, there is more evidence in the last decade to support that patients with AKI could progress on to CKD. And about 30% of the AKI survivors do progress. And this is irrespective of etiology because even patients who've had drug-associated acute kidney injury, 70% of those patients have residual kidney damage at six months. And so one of the key factors in determining a patient's progression in the severity of CKD is figuring out their kidney fibrosis. And the way to do that is through biopsy. But wouldn't it be great if that type of test wasn't needed? You didn't need to be that invasive and go towards biopsy. Maybe a test like the furosemide stress test could provide you some insight into the amount of fibrosis and the potential for progressing to CKD or progressing in severity in CKD. So these were some patients, 84 patients who were already going to be evaluated by biopsy to assess their interstitial fibrosis. And before they went in for the biopsy, they were evaluated with the first mite stress test at the doses used in the original Trellis study, evaluated their urine output over six hours before the biopsy, and then matching the biopsy results and the percent of fibrosis that was noted through the biopsy with the urine output. So breaking that into the percent fibrosis of 25% fibrosis for the patient or 26 to 50% or 50% or greater, you can see that after hour one, the response to the first of my stress test was less of urine output with the more fibrosis. 
And then this was also matched to the timing of the urine outputs at two hours, four hours, six hours, and also for total. And you can see that at four hours, it was suggested that there was less urine output in patients with more fibrosis. And also just in total over the six hours, there was less urine output for greater percent fibrosis. So an interesting application for the FST as well. Why are we even calling this first mice stress test? And I could have brought this up at the beginning of the talk, but I wanted to wait till now to see the different clinical assessments that have been completed and the association with those first my stress test results and the outcomes of interest to kind of link it all together. And so it's called the first my stress test. We can talk in just a second about what those stressors are. But you'd imagine that when the kidney's in stress, that if you intervene, especially for acute kidney, if you intervened at that point in time, you could potentially prevent the progression of the AKI severity. But if you remember the criteria that I had mentioned for the Chihuahua original study, they enrolled patients who had either had stage one or stage two acute kidney injury. So while it's useful in evaluating, predicting the outcomes to progression, it would be better if we used this first my stress test earlier, right? More at the stage one, or even when you're thinking that the stress is in inducing some type of renal impairment. So that you can really get ahead of it and better manage the patient and potentially prevent the AKI from occurring, or at least prevent the progression or prevent the severity of the AKI. That's the general thought. But remember, the timing of when to use the first mice stress test has varied, in particular with the studies that we had discussed. And so it's called the first mice stress test because the kidney undergoes these stressors, right? It could be drugs that's causing the stress as a physiologic stressor. It could be pregnancy, high-protein diets, aging, or high cardiac output. There could also be pathological stressors, right? The acute kidney injury that we're talking about, and we have been talking about. We even talked about the stressor of chronic kidney disease with using furosemide stress tests. Could be diabetes, cardiorenal syndrome, or hyperfiltration as some examples of stressors. And then here's a figure that describes this in particular for acute kidney injury. I said that the first my stress test is using to evaluate the tubular integrity and the renal reserve. And so you can see here on the left that is GFR and on the bottom is nephron mass and on the right is serum creatinine. And you can see when stressors occur that the kidney will then go to its renal functional reserve. How well the kidney is still able to function by going into the reserve or seeing kind of like how much is left in the tank, it would evaluate and do that. So it's an assessment of or you don't have any more renal functional reserve. That's when you're going to more likely to lead to damage. This is a way of looking at renal functional reserve in a more practical clinical way to do this assessment. So as you can see, when renal function mass declines to 50%, that's when your serum creatinine rises. And we're trying to get ahead of that before all that happens. And so what are our takeaways from this? You know, in theme with the talk, well, it's complicated, right? FST is being used to predict a variety of outcomes in acute kidney injury and critically ill patients. We're looking at evaluation in patients who've received a kidney transplant. We have looked at in patients who have some type of kidney disease, chronic kidney disease. So you're being used for various predictions, potentially administered at various timings. We've seen various doses. And what we haven't correlated this much with is, you know, if you respond to the first mice stress test by better managing the patient, does that improve patient outcomes? So we're understanding what the utility of the test is, but using it to alter clinical care, what are the outcomes associated with that? So we want to standardize use, which is important. We went over the pharmacist checklist and different considerations, which I think are important to continue to evaluate each time the first mice stress test is used and in a standardized way, whenever it's used in the ICU. And then to think about fully what the interpretation is, right? What it's predicting, but in addition, where drug management occurs relative to the results of the first mice stress test. So 
that's our comprehensive discussion, a 30-minute discussion of the furosemide stress test. And so there was plenty to fill the time. So thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to follow us at ASHB Official wherever you listen to your podcasts and check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2021 ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Vicki Basiliga from ASHB Official and thank you for all you do for your patients.